I'm Phil Desemlin. I'm the global film editor of Time Out. And um, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, the director of the film you just watched, Kevin McDonald. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm a bit underdressed compared to you. I put a jacket on, but otherwise I'm <laughs> slovenly film journalist mode. Um, thanks so much for coming along to have a chat about the film. It's a pleasure. And this is the only summer I can remember on record where actually people have done what they do in America, which is go to the cinema to keep cool. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, I thought um, the obvious place to start would be the beginning, but skipping that, um, because the film, obviously, I mean, you've talked about it a lot since Cannes. Yeah. Um, the film has this incredible third act, twist, twist reveal, yeah. whatever you want to call it, revelation, which you weren't expecting until quite close to locking the film for yeah. Cannes, I believe. Yeah. Um, I think, is it true you had two, two weeks between Ruff, Roughly when I, had, when I got the final interview with <sighs> Mary Jones, who was Whitney's assistant, up until when we locked the cut, was it about two weeks? Right. So, yeah. Can you just explain to everyone what that two-week period was like for you? <laughs> just because, I mean, that's such an epic... Well, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because you sort of... Uh, if you're a documentary maker, you're always kind of hoping that something turns up. You know, it's a sort of the perennial state of mind of expectation. And f I always felt like there was, there was more to this story than met the eye. And I always felt like, I always felt like there was a mystery here. And so I don't know if, we, if, we, if we'd finished the film without having sort of found that revelation, I think I would have felt obviously very unsatisfied and the film would have been very <laughs> kind of uninteresting but I always felt like oh there is something here and we sort of felt we were getting closer to it because it, 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 it I think about two-thirds of the way through the edit so probably a couple of months before the end we we um, I, I did the interview with Gary Whitney's brother where he talked about how he was abused and um, from that point on I thought okay this is obviously the story but it then it then took um, a while to persuade Pat and then, and then Mary Jones finally to, to talk about that. And Mary had spoken to me before. She did, she did two interviews. And in fact, there's only a documentary thing I've done where I've almost all the main characters I did more than one interview with. And some of them I did four interviews with. Wow. Because, uh, um, and that was some indication of how um, reluctant to speak people were. You've, you've talked about how uh, Whitney's brother yeah. um, was on a sort of different substances in a number mm. of the interviews that mm. you... I just wonder what that kind of process of, of doing those interviews must have been like from, from where you were sitting, because obviously you're going to get a slightly different story each time. Yeah, well, it felt, it, it felt like you were seeing the aftermath of a terrible storm that had gone through these people's lives. Um, everybody who was close to Whitney, and the closer they were, the worse the damage of the storm had been, in a way. Mm. And um, I think at the heart of that, obviously, is her mother and her, her two brothers. And both the brothers seem so um, damaged and unhappy when I first met them, but in very different ways. Get, um, Michael, who is uh, the younger brother, um, and Whitney's full brother, he, um, he was... Um, full of regret, and he was clean at the time. Right. And he really wanted to, you know, get things off his chest, talk openly about things. Gary, to begin with, who first showed up, he, I think, was probably high. He was very aggressive, really unpleasant. And I left that interview thinking, I 
don't like this guy, and I think he's, you know, he's the root of all the problems in this woman's life. And, but of course, after then, another three interviews with him, I came to feel total empathy for him and, and feel that he had had an awful, an awful, awful time. And there's only a part of what makes his life awful in the film, to be honest. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting things about doing a document, a long-term sort of documentary like this, where you sort of, um, you know, immerse yourself in in in, in a world, in a, in, a, in a family, in this case, is that there are no heroes and villains, and you do end up feeling that everybody has their reasons. And that's, I think that's one of the great things about documentary too, is that everybody is human, humanized. Um, and I think even John Houston, who was Whitney's father, who comes across as a bit of the bad guy in this, you know, he had his reasons for being like that based on the racism he has experienced as a, as a, as a younger man, trauma in the war that he had, all sorts of things that happened to him. So, you know, in the end, in the end, if you, if you go to the trouble of understanding everybody, you're going to forgive everybody. Yeah. I did find watching it that you were sort of preconditioned to look for the villain. I mean, maybe yes. it's a, a legacy of watching a lot of fiction movies. Yeah, no, you are. And he is, he sort of the father takes the form of the villain, but mm. only because in a way you, there isn't time in a two-hour film to go in and explain his, his background. And it's almost like you could, you know, it can go on and on and on and on explaining it, everybody. That was one of the things I found so hard about this film was just the, the sheer amount of context you needed to bring to understand what is quite a simple story in many ways. Um, but to, under, to, to, to understand that, that simple story, you needed to have a, you know, a knowledge of all these different aspects of her life and all these different aspects of society at that time. And, um, so that's what made it very, very complex. And at times, I did think this would be better as a sort of six-hour Netflix, you know, <laughs> oh, really? the life and times of Whitney Houston. <laughs> you, know, you could really go into all of that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of story there. And a lot of, mm. like, do you feel like sometimes a door opens and you're like, that may be a blind alley I could walk down. <laughs> you know, there's... Yeah, definitely. I mean, because, you, you know, it's already a very long film, and, but you could make it, you could, I could easily have made a three-hour version, even just using the material I had by going down some of the little alleyways. Mm. But... Uh, you said that Marley was too long. <laughs> <laughs> Marley was too long. But with, with the Bob Marley film, I felt this, this overriding sense that that was a two hour, 35 minutes, I think. And um, I just felt the characters were so fantastic. I just wanted to be with them for such a long time. And, and I think because unlike this film, it was a very optimistic film, I think. And I think this is obviously not such an optimistic movie, but... but I, I felt like I just like, enjoyed being with those people, and so I, I thought, I don't mind if I'm there for a very long, a long time. And also, they're, they're in, in that story, and maybe also a little bit in this, you feel like you've got a certain responsibility to history, because these are major historical figures. And particularly with Marley, it was very difficult to get people to talk, and very um, expensive often. People wanted to be paid, and it was... And so you felt like, oh, this is the only time this is going to happen. Nobody else is going to be able to do this. So who cares if it's half an hour too long? <laughs> you know what I mean? It deserves it. There's a story that really deserves to, yeah, be, for sure. to be long. Well, it, it, if anyone saw the OJ film, that was seven hours. And that was, I, <laughs> I enjoyed every moment of it. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, it seems a weird place to go back to, but, but going back to the beginning, because the project had been around for a little while before yeah. you joined, and, and yeah. it, when Whitney was still alive. So... Yes. Do you have any idea what the sort of the notion was for it back then? Well, I, I, uh, one of the two producers, um, Lisa Erspammer, so it was Simon Chin and Lisa Erspammer. And Lisa Erspammer, for many, many years, I think 20 years, was one of the 
producers or the main producer, I think, on the Oprah Winfrey show. And she had got to know Whitney, and she got to know every celebrity in America, probably, but she got to know Whitney and became fascinated by her then and her last couple of appearances on that show. And she asked her, could I make a documentary about you? And unfortunately, Whitney passed away shortly after that. And she kept talking to the family about it. And so when I got involved, she already had relationship with the family. She already had their sort of tacit approval. And um, so it was, it was you know, much easier for me than it otherwise, otherwise could have been. So you had a, you had a, the Whitney's music kind of, you, you grew up during that period when, yeah. when, you know, I Will Always Love You was sort of ubiquitous and yes. Woody Garber's out, but you weren't yeah. a wild fan. Is that, no. is that, does that play into your decision to do the film in any way, shape, or form? Well, I, I, yes. I mean, I think that, I think that, it, that um, normally you do films about artists, you know, who you just love and you, you know, but, but in this case it really was about, I thought there was an incredible psychological mystery and the music is vastly popular. It's not exactly my kind of music. I don't, you know, collect Whitney's albums, but I, I respect it and I respect it much more now. I love, I love it, in fact, now. But I didn't, at the time, I thought, I respect this music, but I'm more interested in her and her as a phenomenon, as a sort of, as a kind of cultural, a, a cultural avatar. Right. I'm dying to know if you made a film purely because you love the music, which do, <laughs> who would you make a documentary about? Well, I mean, that was the, the, the Bill Marley film I right. tried to make for years. That was the film I really wanted to make and couldn't get it, couldn't get the permission. And then it all sort of suddenly, suddenly came together. Yeah, I don't know now. I think I'm done with rock films, actually. I <laughs> I, I think, um, I mean, I, I, actually, funnily enough, I don't see them as films about music in a way. I feel them, see them as films about these characters, particularly, particularly the Whitney film. I think it's a, it's a character study in a very un unusual way because it is about somebody who um, was unknowable even to the people who were very, very close to her. And yeah. I, was, I, I was talking just the other day, actually, to... Uh, a, a man who is who was very helpful actually tracking down various rare stills and bits of performance and things who's a who's a huge fan of Whitney's he's been a fan of Whitney since 15 he collects everything he's got and and I went for a drink with him last week and and he was saying you know I met her x number of times I've read every interview she ever did but he said I never I never understood her and it was exactly the, the, the thing that got me interested to begin with this idea that even people who wanted to know her, never understood her. So, but he said, you know, I watched the film and I now feel like, yeah, there's a framework which makes sense for who, who this woman is. Um, I, I'm gonna throw it open to, to the audience in a minute, but I, the, the, the sequence that really stuck with me was the, the Star Spangled Banner performance, mm. which I didn't know about at all, really. Mm. And it, it's pretty spine tingling, the way that she, you know, she, the, first of all, the detail that stuck is that she kind of just, she needed one go at it, and she just kind of nailed it, which, which speaks to a sort of preternatural, almost a genius, really, music, I think which I wasn't thing. aware of. I think the thing but, is that she was, she was a, she, her mother says it in that little bit of home movie footage when she's sort of cuddling her, and, and she says, you know, remember, God laid his hands on you, and this idea that she'd been brought up to think, and her and, 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 and her mother certainly made her think that this is a gift from God. And she, I think that added to the complexity of how she felt about throwing her talent away. 
that actually mm -hmm. it wasn't just throwing her talent away in a normal way like any of us who, you know, if you're not, if you don't feel like God gave you that. I think she felt like she was, that was a bad thing she was doing. And I think it led to more of the, you know, more of the conflict within her. Um, but that, that, that performance, I think, is so, um, uh, is, is, is such a great kind of metaphor for her, her genius as a singer, because I think when she was at her best, it was when she was free to just improvise a bit, to, to um, go with whatever emotionally felt right to her in that second. So actually, you know, on a pop record, that wasn't the best of Whitney. The best of Whitney, as somebody says, was when she was live. And she wasn't always great, but sometimes, often when, or in the great years, but she would do something which was just this one-off amazing performance. And uh, like a jazz singer, mm. but, or, you know, I think gospel is, has similarities to jazz in that sense, in that it's, there's a lot of improvisation within, within it, and it's, it's self-expression. And I think that's what she did so brilliantly. It also feels very politically charged, that moment. Yeah, See very politically of, charged. In the era of NFL players taking a knee, et cetera. Absolutely, um, yeah. Was that something you were mindful of? And, and uh, Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, somebody was asking me, why didn't we put in some of that contemporary? And I thought, well, you don't need to, because it's... Yeah. It's, it's there, hopefully, playing in the audience's yeah. mind. Certainly, certainly very much in an American audience's mind. Yeah, it certainly felt very contemporary. Mm. Um, any questions from the... We've got a couple of roving mics, so if you could just put your hand out. There's a lady in the middle at the back there. Uh, hello, I, I, I very much enjoyed this. I just wanted to ask if Bobby Brown said anything interesting off camera. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, the Bobby Brown that you see on there is very much what you see is what you get. He... he um, I, I think what I've said a lot of times is that he, he, he doesn't feel like he's ready really to talk. He's not matured into a place where he sort of can look back with maturity and, and kind of objectivity on what, on what happened. He's still very much the same person as he was then, I think, protecting his ego, very insecure. Um, so no. But I mean, I, I, the, I felt that everyone before I met Bobby, all the people who, who knew him that I met, so people, we would say, oh, are you meeting Bobby? And i said, say, yes. And they say, oh, he's lovely. I really like Bobby. So actually it was, you're going to like him. That's what people seem saying to me. <laughs> um, and he did, he, actually off camera, he felt like quite, a, quite an affable guy in a weird way. Are you surprised he agreed to, to speak for the film? Um, Well, I was disappointed that he, did want, that, he, that he didn't have the same openness as everybody else, but I think that's because he's just not there. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be, it's impossible for him. And I could, I could theorize as to why that is, the, the sense of guilt um, mm -hmm. over his daughter in particular, and you know, just wanting to block that out. I mean, I, I don't know, but it's all, it would be speculation on my part. But um, I think he wanted, because he knew everybody else was talking, he wanted to he wanted to be a part of it. Um, I did actually then, after the interview was over, I did then phone him up again and say, Bobby, I think you're not going to like the way you come across, and um, we, should, we should do this again, because everyone else is much more open than you are. And he said, oh, maybe. He said, I, he said I'll, 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 I'll do it if you show me the film, as it is at the moment. And I said, <laughs> you know, I would never do that, Bobby, but for you I will. 
And um, with an, I've, I've literally, I've never done that. Who, you, you know, no documentary maker, I guess, would do that. So I, I, I said to him, I will show it to you, but you have to watch it on your own or with your wife. I don't want anyone else there. And it'll give you a sense of how, you know, how open people are in the film. And so he said, OK. And he turned up to watch it. I was here. He was in Los Angeles. He turned up to watch it with a friend. And the producer who was there said to him, well, you can't go in to watch it with your friend. And Bobby said, sort of said, I have to. I'm not back. And then he made it into this kind of like, you know, who's dominant male here in the room? Is it me or you? And in the end, the producer said, well, either, you know, Kevin made it very clear that you can only watch it on your own. Um, and in the end, he just left. So, again, it's sort of indicative of what he's like, I guess. Well done, by the way. Absolutely fascinating. Um, just want to ask about the abuse. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it sort of pops up. Uh, did you then go and try and talk to her mother about it? Um, I didn't go and talk to her, no. I didn't because... I didn't know, I didn't, I knew her mother didn't know about it. So I felt that it was cruel to do that, to go and put her on camera and say, why didn't you know about this? What did you, you know, what did you know about it? Because it would have turned it into a, in the same way as talking to Dion Warwick, would have, it would have turned it into sort of an accusation against them somehow. And I didn't, I feel like it's not, that's not fair on them. Now, obviously, if Didi Warwick, Didi Warwick is no longer alive, and if Didi Warwick had been alive, I would have sought comment from Didi Warwick. But I made the decision, or we made the decision in the production, not to do that. Specifically, not to, not to talk to the not to talk to the mother or to Didi. Didi you didn't have a conversation with her off camera, privately, to say, "Look, this is coming up in the film." Yes, no, we did. And what did she say? Um, she said she was very shocked. And then she came around and said, I don't believe it. And um, she said, my daughter, was, my daughter uh, was never looked after by anybody else but one babysitter, which was not true because the brothers kept saying we were moved from pillar to post, we were with it. So obviously it's a big ethical decision as to whether or not to put information like that into, into the film. But it felt to me with three people saying it, and one of them being Whitney's brother saying that he was also abused, I felt there was, that there was the right thing to do to put that information in and to put her name in, because there was the person, there is a person there sitting in front of you who's saying, I was abused and it ruined my life by this woman. And I think, because we were cutting it by this stage, late in the cut, in the in the era of the kind of post Weinstein, post Me Too kind of world, I felt like that is that was the right thing to do, um, to to give the victim priority over the per, over the perpetrator. It was also what Mary Jones, in particular, who was the Whitney's assistant, who speaks so articulately about it. It was the reason she wanted to talk about it, because her own sister had, been, had, been, had suffered sexual abuse, and she felt that her sister had never been able to give voice to that and give voice to, to the fact that 
you know, she's been made to feel powerless, I suppose. And so she very much wanted this, what she considered the elephant in the room, to be now finally out to be discussed. Gentlemen up here at the back. I hope you can elaborate on a couple of things. Um, you said in passing, and I'm not sure if there was anything in the film about it, that Whitney's father uh, said something about the impact of the war, and I wondered yeah. which war and what impact. Yeah. Uh, and the other question is, uh, there was a brief line about the setup of the Diane Sawyer interview. Yeah. But I wonder if you could talk more about that, because that's a pretty inexplicable interview, and clearly there were quite a lot of discussion. Well, that was done, that was done to publicize a, a record, and I think everybody, those who were really looking out for her were, were mystified that the record company would want to put her on television in that state. But I think also you have to see it in the context of the, the Michael Jackson concert, which was just before that, where she appeared looking skin and bones and everybody in the tabloids was saying, you know, she's dying, she's got HIV, she's all of these things. And so they felt that they had to, I think, do something. They had to put her up there and she had to explain herself because it was kind of an open secret by this stage and she had to actually answer back and say something, yes, yes, I have a problem and I'm dealing with it. Um, but I think she was not, she was not manageable. You know, she wasn't going to take any PR person's lines. I mean, I think what's so fascinating to me about that interview is that it's maybe the only time out of all the interviews Whitney did where you feel you're engaging with the real person and somebody who's present with the camera and you see the intelligence of this woman. And it's painful, but actually there's real honesty in that. And almost every other interview I think of, there isn't any honesty. It's so superficial. One of the things made the film, making the film so hard is because she's never, very rarely giving of herself, her, you know, her deeper self. Um, and the other question I've forgotten now what it was. The other oh, oh was the about the war. Yes, which, which war? So what John Houston, her father, was, uh, first of all, he, he, he went to, he, he, um, his mother was, was a school teacher and a great believer in education, the power of education to lift people up from where they were, to improve lives, and he, where John was sent to, he was as the first black pupil to an all-white school, I believe in Washington, D.C., actually, interestingly. I, don't, I wouldn't absolutely guarantee that, but I think it was. And um, on the first day there, uh, one of the kids called him the N-word, and he punched this guy's lights out and then got expelled from the school. Um, and so, that, I mean, that's just background. He then, went into the, he then went into the military in the Second World War, and as it, probably you all know, but I didn't know before I did this, no black soldiers were allowed to fight on the front line in the American army in the Second World War, which I thought was in, in, incredible. They were segregated, and they were uh, put into kind of support jobs. And he was part of what was called the Red Ball Express, which is a quite a famous um, organization of drivers driving supplies from the Calais and the other ports, French ports, 
to the front line. And it was incredibly dangerous. So this is, I guess, early 44, I guess. Um, incredibly dangerous. Many, many of them died. It was more dangerous, in fact, than being on the front line. But they didn't get any of the credit. They didn't get any of the acknowledgement. And they were, according to John's son, John Jr., John left the military feeling this incredible resentment towards America over the fact, over racism, institutional racism that he felt he'd experienced, that he'd, he'd risked his life, many of his buddies had died, and they didn't get any of the credit for it that they should have got. So he came then into the world of work after the war with this sort of baggage of anger and resentment. And you can see that, you know, you have this talented daughter who's going to take on the world, and, and you're going to think, this is the way I'm going to get the respect that I never had before. And this is the way that, um, you know, there's that fascinating bit where Ricky Minor says that John said to him, you know, you know you've made it when you've got white people working for you. And I think that says quite a lot about, about his state of mind. So, yeah, that's something of his background, which I would love to have put in, but it's just, I did have it in an earlier cut, <laughs> but it was just a long wow. thing. Um, yeah, hi. Um, just wanted to talk about complicity and responsibility and your thoughts on that. Um, do you think that she could have been saved or did she have to, uh, to quote Guns N' Roses, have an appetite for self-destruction? I mean, well, whatever I say will be speculation. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that um, on display in the film and also what I saw and experienced, yes, there's a huge amount of complicity and the reason I think that so many people were refused to talk honestly when I, when I spoke to them, why it took so long to get this film made, was because uh, there's so much guilt. Almost everybody felt incredibly guilty. And there was, a, there was one woman who appears in the film called Lynn Volkman, who was Whitney's publicist, and uh, for all her career, basically, from 86 till her death, and still her publicist. And she said to me that, um, uh, uh, she was crying when she said it. She said, I, I've spent 30 years lying to the press every day about Whitney. Telling them, no, she hasn't got a drug problem. No, she's fine. You know, she's just late because she missed her dental appointment. Or, you know, and, um, and she said, I thought I was helping her, and now I realize that I was part of the problem. And I think a lot of people around her feel like that. And most of them aren't brave enough to, you know, actually ad ad admit it. Um, they were along for the ride, most of them, and, and a lot of these people around her, a lot of her family members, they didn't have any other options. They were, it was either working for Whitney or working in the McDonald's, basically. Um, so, you know, they were, they were going to enjoy themselves. Gentleman here. just wondered how you came to have to bleep out a couple of those names when there were the, the accusations about the father ripping them off, basically. Uh, because the, 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 there was a lawyer and an accountant who were named, but um, uh, <coughs> legally we couldn't mention those names without they could have sued us, you know, and we, we, we couldn't have proven it, um, obviously. It would have been very difficult. We don't have the paperwork or whatever to prove that, they, that these people stole. But it was, we left them in there just to sort of say that, yeah, there are specific people who are being, this is not just about, oh, in the organization around her ripped her off. It was about, there were 
two specific people who you know were buying yachts and sports cars and and her father as well well it just wasn't worth going to that much depth to add that to the story because it wasn't that important or what, what do you mean sorry or it just wasn't worth digging to that degree because it wasn't as important no just that we could never really, well it's just it's just it's it, it, it i took the word of the son who's you know the guy who says it who's whitney's brother um older brother um and uh, there's no way we could have ever prove to those that those people were were ripping her off. I mean, it's, that would be forensic accountants you would need, and I'm sure none of the paperwork exists. So they, the, the people who I s assume were ripping her off, would have sued us, and they would have won. <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't worth it. It's a lady with the microphone just oh, there. Hi there. Um, just want to say first of all, um, really enjoyed it. Um, but I'm left really curious about the girlfriend, Robin. Mm. Um, she wasn't interviewed. I don't know if she's still alive. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about her? She, she is still alive, and obviously I really wanted to interview her. She's the one sort of missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle. But uh, she did not want to be interviewed. I tried for several months. We went back and forth by email, and... Um, she sort of, to begin with, looked like she was going to do it, and she'd seen a couple of my other films, which she'd liked, and she said to me, I've said I would never do an interview about Whitney. And then she said, but I liked some of your films, and I think it might be quite good, so let me think about it. And then she thought about it, thought about it, and, thought about it, and then in the end said no. So, again, I don't, I don't know why, why that is, but it's a, sh it, 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 it's a shame. I did manage to see, while I was researching the film, I saw various bits of correspondence between Whitney and Robin from the period where they were having a relationship, which was quite early on, sort of 81 to 85, something like that, just as Whitney was getting, becoming famous. And that was the period where they had a romantic relationship. And then it, it seems as though it was Robin herself who said, we, we should break this off because we need to focus on your career and this is going to be a distraction for your career. Um, that's that's what I gathered from from the information I saw. Um, I was um, just wondering at the time of Whitney's first album, which was fabulous, and myself and all of millions of other people thought that she was back. Mm. Um, just one of the tunes on there as well, and, but you didn't include any of that. Just because there wasn't room for it, I suppose, that's, you know, um, to me it wasn't her best work, but, but I'm, I'm bow down to your, <laughs> your, your taste, obviously. But um, uh, it, 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 it just, I couldn't include it all. I mean, obviously there's so many, th there's so other films that she did, you know, Waiting to Exhale, for instance, which people, a lot of people love. Which we didn't go into. There's other, lots of other, lots and lots of other records that we didn't go into. I suppose, you know, what I wanted to do in saying about her art, I wanted to sh to show the audience, she is a genius, she is amazing. But that wasn't the purpose of the film. The purpose of the film wasn't to say, you know, let's go through Whitney's co career and talk about her songs. It was to say, who is this person? So it was a psychological story for me. Um, and therefore, the music was part of that, a very important part, and the part that why we're here talking about her, but it wasn't the central thing that I was interested in. Uh, gentleman just here. 
Well, it's a terrific film, uh, and congratulations on making Thank it. Thank you. Um, I, I was just interested, did uh, Clive Davis refuse to be interviewed? This I know, was, he was in it. A little bit. Oh, he, I'm surprised he didn't, talk, <laughs> he didn't talk about... I mean, he was there almost to the end. Mm. And, and, and there wasn't that story... He didn't really t take that story to the end. At least, or maybe he did, but um, he felt it wasn't right. No, I mean, I did, a, I did an interview with him... Um, uh, but I didn't think he was that interesting, I suppose. I mean, that, I mean in the end, that's, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of people who are a lot of celebrities and a lot of people, people who one might think, oh, they should be in the film, but I felt like the, 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 this movie required total honesty and integrity and, and, and Clive is quite a narcissist and everything is seen through his point of view. And so he's not that interesting talking about Whitney. And he's written a book, so if anyone's interested, you can read his book. And when I did the interview with him, he basically recited sort of chapters of his book back to me almost word for word. So, yeah, it's one of the... <laughs> so I, 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 there was an enormous amount of the filtering process making this film. I think I did 75 interviews, which is more than I've ever done on anything by far. And I think there's like 30 or something in 30 something in, in the film. So there were an awful lot of people who just were incredibly bland or dishonest or just, yes, or didn't have anything to say. I don't know. That was one of the things that made it, it both frustrating to make, but also fascinating because you always feel like, oh, people are, you know, they're stopping me. What is, what's beyond there? You know, why, why are people not talking honestly? Um, yeah, and, and any documentary is obviously always a, it's always a selection, it's a choice, you know. It's just, it's, and and um, yeah, Clive just didn't feel like he was the important voice. Um, there's so much more to sort of get into with this film. We could spend hours, I'm sure, talking about <laughs> it. I just on a just to finish on a kind of a personal note. I mean, obviously, you spent many hundreds, I don't even thousands of hours yes. watching foot archive footage and really immersing yourself in Whitney's life. Yes. What, is there a single image that kind of springs to mind when you think of her now? Is there, is there, is there one sort of thing that you like to remember her by almost? Because it is a personal relationship, isn't it, making a film like this? Yeah, no, it is a personal relationship. Somebody you haven't you, met. you feel like you have this incredible close bond to them, but it's that weird thing, of, you know, you've been sitting in an editing room for a year and a half looking at them, and they don't know who you are, even if she was alive, you know, she would, <laughs> it's a strange, it's the editor's thing, you know, the editor always thinks they know the actors on the set, <laughs> they don't know. But um, I suppose I, 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 for me, the sort of incredibly happy young Whitney of the 80s, when she's doing, you know, her poppiest, and probably most superficial, but most fun, Music, so it's not you're not into the into the big ballads of the '90s mm. and the 2000s, but that period where she just seemed so joyful, that's the sort of the stuff I remember. And I think one of the things I so enjoyed finding on on, on this film was th those beautiful 35 millimeter bits of footage of her, the outtakes of the pop videos for "I Want to Dance with Somebody" and and "How Will I Know," and uh, Sony Records here actually had the original negatives in their vault, and we went through them all. And, and there was all sorts of these, you know, just beautiful little moments, a few frames of her here and there. 
And I think those are the bits that I sort of are tantalizing because you feel the sense of a joyful, happy life that could have been lived somehow in those moments. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Thank you for sticking around for the Q&A. And please put your hands. Thank you very much. Thank you.